So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sent out an email last night to let everyone know to give a heads up that we would be talking about this subject. Um, and it's fitting that we started the children's ministry at, simultaneously when we started 1 Corinthians because it addresses a number of adult topics that need to be addressed within the church. We've called this ser- series Church Health Matters. Church Health Matters. We look at 1 Corinthians and we see Paul not putting the Corinthian church as a example of church health, but addressing issues of unhealth within the church. And so we see that church health really does matter, especially when we look at chapter 5. And we look at the, the steps that the Apostle Paul gives to address issues that will affect the church, the individual and the church overall, and steps that are to be taken so that health will occur and be maintained within the church. How many of you know somebody who has gone to the doctor and gotten some bad news, like really bad news? Maybe maybe you've gone to the doctor and you've gotten really bad news and, and, and maybe you've taken your health for granted or, or that person that you know took their health for granted, like they're doing well and then one day they go to the doctor and they get some news, of a very serious, sobering warning that there's a, there's a sickness, there's a disease, something needs to change, this treatment, this medicine, you need to change your diet, you need to change something, or, or we can't do anything for you, the doctors may, may say, right? When, when people have that kind of experience, all of a sudden, their health, their physical health becomes really important to them. Things that they once took for granted, didn't see as a very big deal, all of a sudden become very important to them. And in this passage today that that the apostle Paul describes how someone who is living in habitual sin, how it's to be addressed within the church is designed to be a sobering warning and and communicate the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of God's church being a healthy church who have healthy relationships within the body of Christ. And so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, let me just say I have mixed emotions about talking about this, this message. Imagine if you were me right now, and this was your sermon or Bible study to teach and lead. And, and let me just say this. We believe the whole Bible and that's why we go through books of the Bible and we, ex- we expound on verse by verse, even the parts of the Bible that we don't feel comfortable with, even the parts of the Bible that our culture and modern ears rejects and looks down upon and, 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 and makes fun of Christians for and cancels Christians for having convictions like this when it comes to morality. Okay, so... First Corinthians chapter five, verse one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in body, I am present with you in spirit as if present. 
I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. And you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, Or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But I am now, but now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that we need and we accept as your word for your your people, for the church. And we ask that you would teach us. Teach us your ways. Teach us to take you seriously, to take sin seriously, and teach us to love one another well, to speak the truth in love, to address areas of sin in our own lives, to get the log out of our own eye and help one another get the speck out of theirs as well. This morning, I ask that you would sanctify us by your truth, that you would lead us into your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So here's the big idea this morning. The big idea is that God's people must take sin seriously by lovingly correcting those within their church community who are practicing unrepentant sin for the sake of their restoration, the church's health, and the honor of God's name. God's people must take sin seriously. As we've talked about, the Corinthian church was like the um, New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles of our day. They were known for their sexual immorality. They were known for, for ungodliness. The Corinthian culture, the Corinthian church had been influenced by the Corinthian Culture And Paul was addressing a number of issues where he saw the Corinthians looking more like Corinth rather than Christ. And throughout the letter, Paul was calling the Corinthians to embrace Christ's likeness, to follow the way of Jesus, which is the way of holiness, which is the way of humility, which is the way of love. Paul is calling the Christian church to embrace the gospel, to live out the implications of the gospel for their lives. And in this context here, that involves purity, sexual integrity. And so we see that the problem here, Paul states, 
is that there is sexual immorality within the church. And it's not just any kind of sexual immorality, it's incest. A man has his stepmother. Now, I'm glad this passage didn't fall on Mother's Day. That's next week. I have a much more encouraging message to talk about next week. But today we're going to address this, this, this issue here. And so it's, it's, it seems that the, the, the stepmother wasn't a part of the church, but the man was. And so Paul hears about this. And it's not just the immorality that he hears about that he has an issue with. It's not just that it happened, but it continues to happen. It's, it's an ongoing thing. It's a man has his, his stepmother. It's not had, not something happened inappropriate. It's, it's an ongoing thing. And so it needs to be addressed. And it's not just that, 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 that there's immorality and it's incest. And by the way, this is, this is like rejected. This, this level of immorality is rejected by Romans and Greeks of the first century who were very immoral, who embraced sexual immorality as a lifestyle. And not even among the pagans, not even among those who weren't walking with God would, would they accept such a thing as acceptable, as okay. And so Paul first addressed this issue of sexual morality, and the Greek word here is called pornoneia. Pornoneia. Sound familiar? Very similar to our English word pornography. And Paul has to address this over and over in a number of portions of a number of his letters. And, and he says, this is not to be, it's not fitting for the people of God. Don't even let such a thing be named among you. You see, the gospel has major implications for our lives and how we handle our lives and how we treat our bodies and how we relate to one another. This is not God's good and beautiful design for sexuality. God has indeed made us sexual beings. The purest, holiest mind in the universe thought of marriage and created marriage and for there to be sexual intimacy within marriage. And that's, that is nothing to be ashamed of. It's to be enjoyed and celebrated within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's a beautiful, pure, and holy thing. And couples are to keep the, the marriage bed undefiled and guard against any corruption. But Paul's addressing not only the immorality, but he's addressing the arrogance. Now, verse 2, Paul says, and you are arrogant. Now, I don't know about you, but I just have to ask myself, what are, what are the Corinthians arrogant about when it comes to this situation? Okay? Like, there's nothing to be proud about here. Now, there's, there's other areas that the Apostle Paul addresses that the, the Corinthians were arrogant about, like their leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Jesus. Right? They, they were, they were boasting in who they follow and putting them against other leaders. And Paul was like, like, don't limit yourself. Like, all are, all those leaders, they're a part of the body of Christ. Like, that's a part of your, your, your gift from God. You're in the family of God and don't put them up against one another. And boast against one another. The, the, the Corinthians tend to have pride in their spiritual gifts. In their knowledge. What they knew. And they tend to have pride in eloquence of speech. And they valued that kind of thing. 
and Paul was calling them to humility. But here, they seem to be arrogant about this guy who's in their community, who they're accepting him and his behavior as okay, and they're proud about it. Perhaps they were thinking in their minds, we're more open-minded than everyone else. We're a grace church. We're free. We're free in Christ. And so we embrace this guy and this lifestyle. And, and, and perhaps it was something along those lines. Commentators speculate about what, what might have been going on there. And, and when we read this letter, it's kind of like hearing, like say you're at a coffee shop and you hear somebody who's on one side of, of a, a conversation and you hear them talking and you're trying to make, put the pieces together in the story. And so they seem to be arrogant about their tolerance, their open-mindedness, their, their freedom in Christ, and, and that they, they accept this guy and they allowed this to, to go on. Now, the response of the, the, to the problem, uh, we see Paul addresses what the appropriate response should be here. Now, their response was arrogance, and they were proud about, they, they, they gloried in their shame. They were proud about something that they should have been ashamed of. They should have grieved over that. Paul says, ought you not to have mourned? Shouldn't you be sad and brokenhearted that this is happening in the church? Shouldn't it break your heart? Instead, you just tolerate and accept and, 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 and are proud about it as if it's okay to accept incest in the church. They, they embrace tolerance versus removing the perpetrator. And this is what the apostle Paul said ought to happen. They ought to grieve and they ought to take action to remove the person practicing such a thing within their midst. Now we call this church discipline. This is church discipline. Church discipline is a necessary step to maintain church health. It's a necessary step. It's needed. It's needed because the Bible instructs that this should Now this is, now removing a person from the community isn't the first step to take generally when it comes to, uh, church discipline. And by the way, Discipline is a part of being a disciple of Christ. How many of y'all are disciples of Christ? How many of you have been discipled and are, or being discipled as a follower of Christ? Well, discipline is a real important part of discipleship. The words are very closely connected. And experiencing discipline, being disciplined as needed is an important part of discipleship. Those of you who are parents know that disciplining your children is an important part of raising them up and teaching them. And we do that because we love our children. And God does that in the lives of his people and his children because he loves them. And a church does the same as needed. So he says, let the person be removed. And then in verse 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this is necessary. Paul instructs, this is what should happen. Now, what does that mean? 
to deliver such a one to Satan. Does, does that sound like anything you're excited about doing? This is probably the least favorite thing that pastors and leaders have, or a church has to engage in when it comes to maintaining health within the body of Christ. It's like getting cancer treatment. Nobody's looking forward to getting cancer treatment. But when there's cancer in the body, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be dealt with so that it doesn't spread and affect the entire body. And hopefully you can save all the parts of the body in treating the cancer and addressing the cancer that's, in, that's infected the body. But church discipline is a necessary step to maintain church health. Paul says you're to deliver, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now this is synonymous with removing this person. The church has been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. We've been delivered from Satan's domain and reign, the reign of sin in our lives and Satan's reign in our lives. And we live within the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a part of our inheritance. And Paul says, you're to deliver this one over the Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, some commentators think that this is con- the destruction of his flesh is connected to like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he talks about the Lord's Supper and those who partake in an unworthy manner, who are sick and even have died because they're, they're partaking in an unworthy manner of the body. Christ. And so Paul goes on and, and he says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord and notice how many times throughout these passages, uh, Paul brings up the name of the Lord, it's the name of the Lord a couple times in these passages. Um, one, because the, the name of Jesus being honored is important. And church discipline aims to protect and honor the glory of God's name, the reputation of Jesus. And church discipline is to be exercised in the authority that Jesus gives to the church. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with my power, with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Church discipline aims to be redemptive, not punitive. Now I'm going to just hammer this home. Okay. This is, this is important. The aim and the purpose of church discipline is not condemnation. It's not to kick people out and be exclusive. It's it's redemption. It's redemptive. It's restoration, not condemnation. Now, this is tough love, right? It's tough love. And when we love some someone who's hurting themselves, sometimes we have to do some difficult things and help them take some difficult steps. But Paul gives us a purpose statement here. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is looking at the bigger picture. And he's like, this guy needs rescue. He's living like he has not been rescued by Jesus. And he needs rescue. And the church needs to intervene and to help him see that this is unacceptable. This is not consistent with followers of Jesus. So the aim is redemptive. It's not punitive. It's not to condemn. It's not to, to be exclusive. Church discipline is the loving 
and Christ-like thing to do. You see, it focuses on the good of the individual. It's loving to the individual who is deceived, who thinks everything's okay with me and God, but I can go, I can keep sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend or keep having this affair that nobody knows about, but God knows about it, right? And so it's the loving thing to do. Notice that in 1 Corinthians, in the, the, the chapter that Paul gives the, the, the longest um, uh, instruction on church discipline, notice that it, this is the same book that Paul gives the chapter of love. 1 Corinthians 13, we all love 1 Corinthians 13, and that's probably what's most well known about 1 Corinthians is the love chapter, right? We, we, we all enjoy that beautiful poetic chapter, but 1 Corinthians 5 doesn't get as much press, but it's much needed. It's much needed. We need to hear this. We need to understand what's going on here. And we need to understand that this is the loving thing to do when somebody is hardened in unrepentant sin. They're set on rebelling against God and God's ways for their lives when it comes to their sexuality or morality. It's loving to the individual. It's loving to the church that that will be infected and influenced by the corruption of the sin. You, you, you and I don't sin in a vacuum. Our sin, our sin affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with others. And so it's loving to the church to exercise church discipline. It's loving to outsiders looking in. People who don't know Jesus. And they look at Christians you, they work with Christians and they see some inconsistencies. If they see some inconsistencies of some adultery or immorality and, and they hear somebody talking about Jesus, all excited about Jesus, inviting them to church, they're going to be like, I don't know if I want to go to that church. Right? If that If that's what y'all do over there, I'm not interested in that. I'm looking for the real thing. I'm looking for people who... Who want to do what's right. And so it's, it's, it's a loving thing for outsiders who are looking in. It's a loving thing towards Christ whose name we bear as Christians. We want Christ's name to be honored. Now, Jesus taught on church discipline and how this is to work in Matthew chapter 18. He said this. He said, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if the two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So Jesus taught that this is to be a regular process that occurs within the church as needed. Now, let me just say this, that this, the extreme step of excommunicating something, somebody from the church 
disfellowshipping them, that's like the final step. And I've, I've rarely seen that happen. Okay. I've rarely seen that. I have seen, uh, some similar circumstances, but most of the time what happens when somebody's hardened in their sin and they're confronted by another loving member within the body of Christ, you know what happens most of the time? They leave. They run. They find another place to go where somebody will affirm them and affirm them in their sin and tell them it's okay or not know what's going on in their life and just, and they live a life where they're not known. And they church, church hop. Now, in the first century, they didn't have, you know, First Baptist Corinth and First Methodist. You know, they didn't have a bunch of church options to choose from, right? There was the church in Corinth, right? And and so there there wasn't the opportunity to just hop around like like we we can today. And that's why it's important to have church membership that it's it's that you're you're committed to a local church where there's accountability. And, and you're, you're submitting to one another in the body of Christ. And you're saying, I'm committed to following Jesus and his ways for, for my life. And if I get out of step, I want another brother or sister to call me on it and say, this is wrong. You're in danger. You're hurting yourself. You're going to hurt your marriage if you continue down this path. And so Jesus teaches us, this is the way of Jesus. That we're, we're to, we're to speak the truth in love. Church discipline is designed to protect the church. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, but greedy swindlers, idolaters, since you would have to, you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty, of sexual immorality, greed, or idolatry, reviler, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. A reviler is somebody who uses abusive language. An idolater is somebody who worships idols or other gods. Um, a greedy person, we know what a greedy person is. A swindler is somebody who manipulates to cheat people, um, to in their dealing, in their business deals. Um, a drunkard, of course, is somebody who gets drunk. And so Paul says that, that you're not to associate with this person who's habitually practicing these lifestyle, this lifestyle of immorality, that there's to be this, this separation in a sense. Now, this sounds really harsh. Does this sound harsh to you? Anybody? To our modern ears, this is tough to swallow. And, and then we, we got to work out, what does this look like? What does this look like in each specific circumstance, right? Because while, while a lot of people, when they're conf- a lot of people within the church, when they're confronted with their sin, they may leave. Many others may repent and with tears say, you're right. This is wrong. I've blown it. I've hurt my relationships. I've, I've damaged my relationship with God. I've damaged my relationship with my family. I've damaged the relationship with the church. And so I think more, more times than not, that's what happens within the church with those who are followers of Christ. But then there are these, these, these cases like this one 
where, where there's this, this blind spot, there's this deception that it's okay to continue in this path of sin. Sin is deceiving. It will always take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and make us pay more than we want to pay. So church discipline is aimed to protect the church. He says, purge out the evil person from among you. Paul has a number of other verses on church discipline that are similar, that are parallel, like Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the aim is restoration. The aim is redemption. The aim is helping that person get restored where they're not destroying the relationships. He says, take take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Shine the light. Now, of course, it's important for us if we're going to do this, that we be people who walk in the light. That we ourselves expose our own sin first so that we can see clearly to help a brother or sister who is living in sin. Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. So here's Paul addressing uh, those who stir up division within the body of Christ and how to handle that after they've been warned, after they've been addressed about dividing others. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, Paul says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warm him as a brother. Again, the goal is redemption, not condemnation. The goal is restoration. It's not punitive. Now, I think it's really important to notice, too, that within this text... That there is a gospel framework in which this is being addressed. We always address sin in view of the gospel. God's remedy for our sin. God's rescue for us. And so in, 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 in the New Testament when God calls, when Paul and, and uh, there's these calls to godly living, they're connected with what God has done to make us holy. So here in verse 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Clean out the old leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. Sincerity and truth. So Paul points to the, the, the metaphor of leaven in the Passover festival. During the Passover, the, the Jews would, would clear the house of any leaven. And most of the time in the scripture, leaven refers to sin or evil. There's a couple of times that it's, it's referred to as like the kingdom of God, as something positive. But most of the time it's referred to sin and how it spreads and how it corrupts. It has a corrupting effect. And so the Corinthians were to cleanse out the old leaven. They were to remove those who were habitually practicing sinful lifestyle. Get them out so that it, that doesn't 
spread in the church. And he says, for the Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Here is a gospel framework. Just like the Israelites were, were to put, they were to sacrifice a Passover lamb, put the blood of the lamb over a doorpost, and the angel of death passed them over, and they were, the, the, the firstborn was spared, and the firstborn was able to live. So those of us who are in Christ have the blood of Jesus over our lives. We are delivered from sin, from Satan. We are set free. And he says we are to, verse 8, we are to let us celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I think it's important that if we're going to experience the cleansing power of the gospel, we need to get real with God and with one another. We need to have sincerity. We need to be truthful with one another. We need to come to grips with the reality that we've blown it, we've sinned against God. And confess our sins to God. And confess our sins even to one another. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Christ is our Passover lamb. Notice in verse 7, the end of verse 7, that Paul says, You are, you really are a new lump. <laughs> you, is that encouraging? You really are a new lump. Of unleavened bread. My wife likes to, to make bread and, and she does her thing with the, with the spread of the bread and it's exciting to see it rise and her, and it's exciting to be able to taste some yummy bread when my wife makes it. We, and by, and we as a family too have celebrated Passover. We've done Seder meals together as a family. The kids love it. We, we walk through the, the story of the Exodus and we make the connection with Jesus being our Passover lamb and uh and we eat unleavened bread most of the time it's not very tasty um, but it reminds us of the story and it reminds us even here reminds us of what Christ calls us to namely holiness and to church health but we're to walk in sincerity and in truth not evil and malice we're to celebrate the feast we're, we're to live our lives as Christians under the blood of Jesus, living holy lives because he died to make us holy. He truly has made us holy. He told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, all things are new. And so what we have here is we have the indicative and we have the imperative. What God has done, Christ was sacrificed for our sins. He's made us holy. He's made us new. And then imperative, God's command to us to live holy lives in response. This is the pattern that we see within the letters of the New Testament. This is what God has done. And this is how you and I are to respond. We're to respond with, with surrendered lives to God's good and perfect design for our lives. And let me just say, say this about anybody who is caught in or struggling with living under shame or guilt with your particular sin struggle. Jesus died for you and your sins so that you can be free. So that you can be forgiven 
And so that you can be free. You don't have to let sin dominate in your life. You can be free. Christ has set you free. Now, I'm, I'm not expecting that anybody here is living specifically in some immoral relationship, per, perhaps. God knows, and you know. But one of the struggles that many men have particularly is porn, porn pornania, porn, pornography, and looking at screens of, of things that they shouldn't be looking at. And Jesus said, if you do this, if you look to lust after a woman, you commit adultery in your heart. Okay? And so let me, let me just say this. We can't just address sin at a behavioral level. We have to address it at a heart and a desire level. We, we gotta address it in our mind and in our hearts where we're being drawn and tug, tugged away towards something that is prohibited by God. And the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to set you free. To not only cleanse you, but to change you. Not only to bring forgiveness to you, but to free you. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so guys and and ladies as well, let us respond in light of that. Let us respond in sincerity and truth and get real with God. And acknowledge where we've blown it. Come to the light. A little bit further in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives a sobering warning. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, Inherit the kingdom of God. Now I can't skip over this, these verses as we're going through 1 Corinthians. Now some of us might, there may be some who don't want to hear these verses. And there may be some who want these verses watered down and, and, and hear something like, oh, it really doesn't mean that. But when I read these verses, I see that there is destruction awaiting those who practice habitual lifestyles of immorality. I see also that, that there are people who are just ignorant. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Some people are just ignorant. They just don't know. They're not aware. <laughs> I know there were, there were a few things when I first became a Christian that I just wasn't aware until months later, until I heard and, and started to understand the Bible a little bit better and I realized, oh, man, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm a Christian now. And I stopped doing it by God's grace. And then there's, there's other people who aren't just ignorant. They're deceived. He says, do not be deceived. There are people who are straight up fooled thinking it's okay for me to live this lifestyle. I'm going to heaven. I'm a Christian and that's a dangerous place for anyone to be. And so there's a sobering warning here that I think we must all heed. And we must be willing to repeat this sobering warning to any others that we know who are living this lifestyle. And yet they're calling themselves Christians. 
Now, this is hard. This is difficult. But the Bible is the making the judgment here. Okay? And we're just proclaiming what God has said. The judgments that he's already made on those who live this lifestyle. Now, notice also that it's, it's people who practice these things. The, 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 this, those who are Christians, this does not and should not characterize any one of our lives. Because the next verse is this. And such were some of you. When I share my testimony, it's, I look at that list and I remember that was me. That's those things, some of those things characterize my life. BC, before I came to Christ, that's who I was before I came to Christ. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Let that sink in, saints, and let that be motivation for you and I to pursue holiness because God has made us holy. We started out this sermon series focused on being sanctified in Christ. And Paul looks at this church that had a lot of mess and a lot of struggle and a lot of issues. And he calls them saints. And he says, God has sanctified you. He has set you apart. And he tells them here again, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And so because God has done this, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, because we have received his sacrifice on our behalf, we've been washed, we've been set apart, we've been justified. This speaks of our conversion. When we came to Jesus and we turned from our sin and we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and he made us new, he cleansed us and he changed us into new creations by the grace of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Your sin no longer defines you. And you don't have to let it dominate you either. Your sin no longer characterizes who you are. I mean, I love, I was thinking about this week, thinking about David. And when you think of King David, what comes to your mind? He's a man after God's own heart. He had some significant sins, didn't he? But most of the time, we think of, generally speaking, when we think of David, we think of the Psalms and somebody who loved the Lord, who worshiped God. He's a man after God's own heart, and that's how God sees him, and God declares him to be. Right? But he he committed adultery, murder, Covered up his sin. He committed some significant sins. And yet God says that about him. And that's the old covenant. God dealt graciously with David under that covenant. How much more those of you and I who are in Christ Jesus. Who've experienced the mercy and the grace of God. Will we continually to experience that throughout eternity. Because of what Christ has done for us. And how much more should it change the way we live. Change the way we think. You see, grace is not a license to sin. 
Perhaps there were some in the Corinthian church who were, were kind of thinking in that, those terms. And they were, they were arrogant, like, well, we're free. We're under grace. It's, it's okay. You know, we accept this guy in our fellowship. Perhaps that was the mindset. But Paul says, no, God forbid. God forbid that we should sin, that grace would abound. And so let me close in just a couple points of application. You can take a sigh of relief here. Take sin seriously by heeding God's warnings. God gives us a number of warnings in Scripture. And I know passages like these aren't the ones that we tend to gravitate towards in our quiet times. Journal about. But as we read through the Bible, we're going to come across passages like this. As we preach and teach through the Bible, we're going to come across passages like this. And they're there for our good. They're there so that we can experience God and His ways for our lives. They're means of grace. Keeping grace in our lives. By us hearing them and heeding them. And then allow the gospel to shape and form your beliefs and behavior. You see, the, the Corinthian church was not living out the gospel. They were not living out the implications of the gospel in their lives. You see, Christians should be producing fruit. Now, sometimes it, it, the fruit comes forth slower than we, we want it to. And it's discouraging. But Christians should have good fruit that's evident. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That should mark the lives of those who are, are following Jesus. And when we allow the gospel to shape our beliefs and shape our behavior, there's going to be good fruit. The gospel is powerful, not just power to forgive us but power to free us. Not just power to cleanse us, but power to change us. Embrace the biblical call to love others through the difficult actions of speaking the truth in love and exercising church discipline when necessary. See, we're called to speak the truth in love. And this is this is something that we're to do in community groups. As we do life with one another, we want to be known. And by the way, if you're not in a community group, I want to encourage you to get connected in a community group. And if you're not a member here at City Church or a member at another church, I want to encourage you to get plugged into a church where you're submitted to others in the body of Christ, where you're in proximity, where you can hear other brothers and sisters speak the truth in love and give you a warning when you need a warning. I know I need it. I need warnings. I need you, saints. If you see me get out of line with Scripture and living in a way that's inconsistent with Scripture, I need other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to call me on it. And I will respond by God's grace to His authority and repentance. And we expect that of one another. That's a mutual thing within the body of Christ. And in, in our church membership, we the, the expectations that we have for every member here at City Church are biblical expectations. Expectations to walk with Jesus, to love people, to repent when we blow it. And lastly, hold firm biblical convictions while showing compassion, Christ-like compassion. 
So there can be a tendency to be mean-spirited in our convictions, biblical convictions. And we don't want to be Pharisees. We don't want to be judgmental Pharisees in how we carry out our biblical convictions. We want to have grace and truth. We want to have Christ-like compassion. And I love that Jesus can heal and restore the broken, marginalized people. Sinful people who had blown it and they knew they blew it. That the religion, people that the religious community cast out. Jesus welcomed them in because they came humble and broken and they knew they needed a savior. It was the religious proud that Jesus gave his harshest words to. Those who considered themselves righteous in and of themselves. And so let us be a people who hold firm to biblical convictions while showing compassion. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you've given us these words of truth to be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Help us to walk in compassion towards one another. Help us to hold firm the convictions of Scripture in our hearts and in our lives and help us to allow the gospel to shape us and mold us, our thinking, our speaking, and our living. Forgive us where we have taken taken lightly sin, where we've treated it as something okay when it's not okay. Give us your perspective. Give us your heart. I pray now for any brother or sister listening to this who feels bound, trapped, discouraged, defeated by their sin. And I pray, God, that your love would break through I pray, God, that your truth would set free those who hear this message. That they would experience freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin's dominion in their lives. Freedom from the guilt and the shame. You are a great Redeemer and Savior. And where sin does abound, grace truly does abound much more. Your grace is greater. And may your grace have its transforming work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray.